It's Thursday, January 9th, 2020. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage. An attack on an elderly business owner in Redmond will be prosecuted under Oregon's revised hate crime law. An opioid overdose alert is issued in Douglas County. City and county leaders cite homelessness as their biggest challenge. Oregon lawmakers meet next week for legislative days. And Ani Katz digs deep on the news this week that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are stepping back from their roles in the British royal family. These stories and more in this episode of the Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this week's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm Morning Edition host Ani Katz. And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. So, Ani, let's start with you. What are some of the big stories locally this week? So first, I'm going to give some background from uh, basically a week or two ago. On New Year's Eve, a 70-year-old woman, a motel owner whose country of origin is India, was beaten and strangled by James David Lamb. This took place in Redmond. He expressed his desire to, quote, rid America of people like her. This week, a Deschutes County grand jury indicted the Eugene man on charges of attempted murder and bias. Lamb will be prosecuted under Oregon's revised hate crime law. The victim testified in court this week from a hospital bed. Her injuries were pretty severe. Um, Some background uh, just on how Oregon does this. Hate or bias laws address crimes where victims are targeted because of national origin, race, or other protected classes. The legislature updated Oregon's hate crime laws in its 2019 session. Previously, prosecutors couldn't seek felony charges if a perpetrator acted alone. And then we got the additional news later this week that hate crimes generally are on the rise here in Oregon and nationally. Um, And we got the news that the Oregon Department of Justice has launched a hotline to take reports of hate or bias crimes and connect victims with assistance. And that information is actually on our website, klcc.org. Also in Central Oregon this week, Bend began notifying about 5,000 residents that they may be vulnerable to credit card fraud, and that's due to a cyber attack on city services last year. The breach may have exposed the credit card information for people who paid their city utility bills online, and I know there's a lot of people who do this, myself included, although not in Bend. The breach occurred between August 30th and October 14th. Affected customers are being told to check their credit card statements and report any bogus charges. The vulnerability apparently no longer exists and the FBI is investigating and Bend is planning to switch to a new transaction system, obviously, as soon as possible. It is interesting that they only notified their customers this week, um, that they didn't let them know earlier. Right. And I wonder if it's because it took them a while to figure out that the breach had even happened. But as we know, with kind of those national breaches like Target, sometimes they know and they sit on the information for a while because it's not a good look. So um, yeah, 5,000 people is a lot. And again, you know, a lot of us pay our bills online with credit cards because you get those points and it's easier than mailing in a check. Down in Douglas County, um, the Public Health Network has issued an alert for illicit 
opioid overdoses. There's been a sharp spike in fatal and non-fatal overdoses recently. Um, Now, we've actually heard kind of news about this throughout the fall. I've heard this story a couple times, but I guess now it's gotten more severe. Our very own Tiffany Eckert says health officials don't use the term overdose alert loosely. So it's obviously reached this point where they need to kind of alert the public. Kristen Rutledge is the overdose prevention coordinator for Douglas County. There is something going on that's out of the ordinary And at this point, we are at risk of people losing their lives. Rutledge says the heroin circulating around the county is particularly potent or maybe laced with fentanyl. Now, this is that drug um, that mostly is coming from China that is incredibly potent to the point where police have to wear gloves when handling it because even just like the smallest amount, like, uh, like half of your fingernail can cause death, basically. Um, And so free naloxone kits are available through the HIV Alliance Syringe Exchange in Roseburg, and any pharmacist can prescribe the overdose reversal medication. And I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, but whenever I go to pick up prescriptions, there are signs about naloxone at like most pharmacies now. Um, I think obviously this is because we're all facing this opioid crisis around the country, and especially so in Douglas County right now. And then, of course, now that the holidays are over and New Year's is over, I guess that's a holiday too, um, tis the season for state of the city, county, and eventually country uh, addresses. We had our own Karen Richards cover the Eugene mayor, Lucy Venice, giving her state of the city address this week. Um, She touched on many of the same subjects that she has in the past. This is not going to be a surprise to anybody who lives here, namely housing, homelessness, and public safety. Venice noted that several plans that were actually developed in 2019 are finally going to take shape in 2020. We will establish a low barrier shelter, implement mobile outreach teams, develop a landlord engagement program, and significantly hire a strategic initiatives manager who reports to both the city and county to ensure that we have well-coordinated leadership to move us forward. The mayor emphasized investment throughout her speech in reference to the time the city council has taken to understand complex issues and the money that any changes will require to any of these, you know, developments. Venice also said Eugene has lacked adequate public safety for decades, and we know this. We, KLCC is downtown. Um, She acknowledged the troubles some businesses have had with vandalism and trespassing. A year of work brought council to a decisive and courageous vote to approve a payroll tax to support expansion of our public safety services. Now, this payroll tax revenue won't be available until next January. It will finance more police officers and first responders and support at-risk youth. But again, the funds aren't going to be available for a year. At the Lane County um, State of the County address earlier this week, Board Chair Pete Sorensen also talked about homelessness and the need for more affordable housing. And in collaboration with the city of Eugene, the county is working to build a new 51-bed facility for people who are chronically homeless. That's called the Commons at MLK. So there's all these pieces that organizations and municipalities are working on to try to address this issue, but it's huge. And, you know, Sorensen also pointed out that the point-in-time count that's federally mandated came up with, it was more than 2,100 people who are unsheltered in Lane County. Now that point in time count for 2020 is coming up later this month. At least what he said was he expected the numbers to have grown. 
And I think some of the stories that came out, I think it was kind of in the middle of last year about those point in time counts is that they are undercounted because, you know, there it's again, one night where people go out and count, but it doesn't include people that are crashing on friends' couches, staying in motels temporarily, sleeping in cars. Um, so I think I think we were all pretty shocked about the difference. We're not talking about, oh, there's just another 1,000 people. There were thousands more people that were uncounted. So those counts affect where dollars are allocated, but they're not accurate, which is a problem. Yeah. And so, Chris, you um, attended the Corvallis State of the City event this week. That's right. Corvallis Mayor uh, Biff Traber, who is serving his second term, addressed a group gathered um, at an event uh, held by the Corvallis Chamber of Commerce. And he talked a lot about some of the efforts that the city has made to boost public safety uh, funding. Some of that has come through uh, the Corvallis City Council, um, increasing fees on uh, Corvallis uh, residents through their uh, public services bill that they get each month. Some of that came through voter-approved improvements to emergency response systems. He also credited voters, uh, not a public safety issue, but he credited voters for passing a tax levy last year to um, continue and in some cases boost spending on parks and and recreational programs. So he said there's a a lot of things to uh, celebrate. That was a word he used, celebrate. Um, about some funding that is stabilizing in Corvallis, as well as new funding through a state tax for public transportation. Uh, All that being said, uh, he echoed a theme that we've heard from some of the other places about housing continuing to be uh, a challenge in Corvallis. Uh, Corvallis, like Eugene, has a sizable student population, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, students welcome are welcome in the community, but that does put pressure on housing uh, for the entire uh, community. Uh, and it's not just finding um, places for students to live, but it's also finding places for low- and middle-income families to live. He said, you know, if if Eugene, or rather if Corvallis simply makes places for large 4,000-foot uh, single-family homes to be built that are going to sell for four or $500,000, that, that doesn't directly and immediately help uh, a lot of people who are you know, in the middle class or lower income uh, price ranges. So there's some zoning changes that they've been working on to allow for higher density housing in areas that didn't have that before. Uh, so it's, it's very much a work in progress, but he he said housing is continuing to be a focus of his um, in Corvallis. And he also mentioned efforts the city is making to reduce its carbon footprint. Um, he said over the past decade or so, the Corvallis as a whole has remained fairly steady in terms of uh, carbon footprint uh, per capita. So it's not it's not getting worse in terms of how much each person uh, puts out, but because the community of Corvallis has grown over the past decade, the city's carbon footprint has also grown. So he says the the efforts are, you know, extending from city government all the way down to individual levels to reverse that and to get that trend headed in the opposite direction. 
He says the city needs to prepare whether or not um, you think that climate change is a result of of human activity. He said the city needs to prepare for it uh, anyway. So it's not just working on mitigation, but it's also uh, working on uh, things that need to be done in terms of emergency response or stormwater systems or or whatever it is. So those are the two things that uh, he highlighted uh, in his uh, State of the City address in Corvallis this week. So, Chris, legislative days are coming up next week in Salem. What are legislative days, and can you tell us a little bit about what might happen there? Legislative days are basically a series of committee hearings that take place three or four times throughout the years. It's sort of a three-day chunk of meetings. The lawmakers come back to the state capitol, and most lawmakers serve on several different committees, so it's more efficient to, to have them all meet over the same uh, three-day period. Uh, they can't pass any bills or, or do anything like that because they're not technically in session, but it's a way to kind of catch up on business and uh, prepare things for the next legislative session. Well, in this case, the next legislative session is kicking off the first week of February. It's the the short session, so it'll go about five weeks this year. So the legislative days being held at the state capitol this coming week will effectively be the start of the session. Again, they won't be voting on any bills, but they'll they'll start to hold hearings on on things that are right now technically referred to as legislative concepts, but it's basically a, a, a bill before the actual bill number has been assigned. That way, when they do come back to the state capitol in February, they'll have uh, an inkling of what it is they're going to be talking about. And, of course, the, I mean, during these short sessions, the idea is that they, they'll come back and patch up a few budget holes here and there, take care of some emergency issues, but we can also expect to see high-profile issues uh, that maybe didn't quite make it through during the long legislative session last year to come back, and in many cases, in some sort of a, uh, an altered form, uh, one of those a high-profile case of that would be the uh, carbon emissions bill that was uh, the subject of quite a lot of debate during the previous legislative session to the point that some uh, Senate Republicans uh, fled the state to avoid uh, having to uh, vote on that. Um, That bill is coming back to the state capitol with uh, some changes, uh, many changes, don't have time to go through all of them here, Uh, but of course uh, you can be sure that that will be the subject of a lot of debate as well as questioning like, hey, if you didn't get the votes last time, um, why do you think you can do that this time? Well, the answer, of course, is that, well, we've, you know, they've they've changed it, uh, but will those changes be enough to get uh, Republicans and all of the Democrats on board? That remains to be seen, but at any rate, they'll have an initial hearing on that topic uh, coming up at the state capitol next week. Yeah, Chris, maybe maybe we'll at least get a preview of whether this short session is going to be as contentious as last year's legislative session. Well, sure. Yeah, that'll be uh, something to watch. Uh, And we were talking a a few minutes ago about state of the the city addresses. And of course, the State of the Union address is coming up soon. That'll be uh, watched intensely. Uh, There's also a state of the state address by Governor Kate Brown. She'll be delivering that on uh, January 27th 
in Portland. Uh, you may wonder, why is it in Portland and not at the state capitol? Uh, generally speaking, governors have their state of the state addresses at the state capitol every other year when the legislature meets for a full-length session or when there's an inaugural that often serves as the state of the state address. Typically, Oregon governors give their state of the state address in the off years. Um, in Portland, not sure why that is, except, of course, that's the state's largest media market, but there's, there's really nothing to say that they couldn't have that in Eugene or Bend or Pendleton or Medford or, or any number of other communities across the state, but they typically haven't. Be interesting, like strategy wise, because Kate Brown is a Democrat to go to an area where she may not be the most popular candidate, like you met, you know, like in mm-hmm. central or eastern Oregon or southern, you know, I mean, there's a lot of places it might be interesting. Yeah, that's a real good point, especially since she's, you know, in her second term and, and wouldn't be running again anyway. So she doesn't really have to worry about reelection, you know, optics. So this would be the time to do that. Um, that being said, uh, you know, her predecessors, John Kitzhaber and Ted Kulangoski, in my experience over the past 14 years of covering state politics, they've, they've always held their sort of off-year state-of-the-state addresses in Portland. So uh, it's not really an un, you know a, a thing that she came up with. But uh, like you said, anybody could change that at any time. Better places to go for dinner afterwards, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> she can hang out with her friends. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is KLCC's Northwest Passage. We'll be right back. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank team members have experience in the unique challenges of multiple industries, from healthcare to manufacturing. Learn more about their services for the business community at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule, member FDIC. You're listening to the Northwest Passage podcast from KLCC News. I'm Rachel McDonald with Ani Katz and Chris Lehman. And it's time for us to wrap up this episode with something that we've noticed from the news this week or just something on your mind. Well, I think a a lot of us uh, at this particular time are keeping our eye on the forecast, uh, wondering whether we're going to get any snow in the coming week. There's been some hints of that. And of course, up in the mountains, uh, there's a lot of snow in the forecast for the the next seven days or so, which would be a great thing in terms of building back up the, the snowpack, which we've reported on KLCC is has been well below normal for this time of year, about a, a quarter of what it normally is. So a few feet of snow in the mountains would, would go a long way for that. Uh, so how much we get here in the valley is still, as of uh, our recording of this podcast, a very open question of whether we get any at all. But I did notice that the, uh, you know, uh, school students, of course, will be watching this because, you know, are they going to have a day off of school? Typically, those school uh, snow days aren't really announced until the actual morning. Uh, you know, you wake up and you turn on the radio or turn on the, the computer and, and check, are we going to have school today? Well, the State Board of Education, uh, which meets in Salem, uh, typically is having uh, a snow day for their meeting that is that was not even scheduled until next week, next Thursday. They postponed it an entire month to February. So the State Board of Education is taking a snow day a week in advance. Not sure what that means for your local district, though. So you mean they're taking a snow day because of the forecast? It says uh, the state board meeting has been moved to February 20th due to expected inclement weather. Wow. Now, how do they know it's not going to snow on February 20th? 
<laughs> well, that, that's a that's an excellent question. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> it it should be noted that you know there are some state board of education members who live uh, across the state, so there is some travel involved uh, with that meeting. So it's not just about what the weather is locally. Okay, well that's definitely making me nervous, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> I've said here on the podcast uh, before that I do have a bit of a fascination with the British royal family. Um, I don't want to call myself like a full monarchist, but like 60% maybe. Um, it's, I, I promise this is not just from watching The Crown a few times. Like I, I've definitely been interested in the royal family for a long time. I've just always found it fascinating. And this week we had some like literally bombshell news from the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, for those of you maybe not as much in the know uh, or obsessively nerdy as me, that's, of course, uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. So on their Instagram yesterday, they made the announcement, and I'm going to kind of quote from it here. After many months of reflection and internal discussions, we have chosen to make a transition this year in starting to carve out a progressive new role within this institution. Basically, they're going to step back as senior members of the royal family and work to become financially independent while continuing to fully support Her Majesty the Queen. They're going to be splitting their time between North America, that probably means Canada because it is part of the Commonwealth, and England. They did spend several weeks of, uh, you know, kind of Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's uh, in Canada, specifically on the West Coast in Vancouver Island. Uh, Apparently some millionaire lent them their, lent them his mansion. And they are basically going to continue to kind of separate themselves. Um, The financial independent part is interesting, obviously not kind of going to be relying on British taxpayers as much to support their lifestyle. Now, it should be said that Meghan Markle was a successful actress before she married Prince Harry, so she's got income from that. And Prince Harry actually has a lot of his own money, not from the taxpayers. When his mother died, he received, I think, $20 million um, just as an inheritance. So, you know, uh, they're not going to be in the poorhouse uh, in Canada, but this is unprecedented. Um, it's a big deal. They apparently did not inform the other members of the royal family, like the Queen, Charles, and uh, William, that this was happening. They had started early discussions, but the fact that they made this announcement that was very like, this is definitely happening, and they have a huge, you know, kind of built out uh, website with frequently asked questions about the move, um, which you should go check out. And it kind of caught everybody off guard. Megan has had a really hard time since joining the royal family. She's been skewered by the tabloids. One would argue that she's been treated very unfairly, having a lot to do with the fact that she's American, an actress, happens to be a biracial woman. And of course, Harry, you know, is the second brother. So he's not he's six in line for the throne. There were rumors that when Prince Charles becomes king, he was going to streamline the royal family anyway and basically remove everybody else except for direct heirs. That would mean Prince William and Prince George, that nobody else would be a senior member of the royal family anymore. Prince Andrew, clearly because of his association with Jeffrey Epstein, has been also kind of taken a non-role in the royal family right now. But there's a lot of other people. There's Princess Anne. There's all their children. And so it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. Obviously, the tabloids are, everybody's just finding about this right now. So it's obviously, we're still kind of learning. But um, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of define their own roles. They're obviously involved in a lot of philanthropical pursuits. What they will continue to stay associated with and what they will lose associations with because they're no longer senior members of the royal family uh, will be interesting. And I wonder if this means they'll be a little less in the spotlight in terms of being sort of the subject of tabloid 
focus. I think the, you know, for those of us that do follow the Royals a little obsessively, um, we didn't, we saw one picture of them over the past several weeks because they were in Canada having this private vacation. So uh, they did post one picture on I think social media of Harry with um, their son, Archie. And then this other really cute story came out when they, they were apparently hiking with a group of their friends and saw a couple struggling to take a selfie. This is on Vancouver Island and Megan um, apparently stepped up and helped them take the selfie. And so that was kind of all we heard from them for the last few months. So they will be taking a lot more quiet role because they're going to be private, you know, members of society now. Um, it's a loss to those of us who really like following them. Um, I, For those of you who are interested, um, E. Holmes, not the Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, <laughs> but E. Holmes on Instagram is, uh, her name is Elizabeth Holmes, and she's just uh, has great commentary about the royal family, specifically about what they wear. And Megan is interesting to watch, and she highlights a lot of minority designers, people from like African designers. Um, and so it is kind of a loss, just selfishly, because I like seeing pictures of her. But as a mom, I get it, wanting to like just live a more private life. Well, I'm just going to throw this out here, but um, Kaiser has the the closest in and out burger to Canada. So if they want to come down for a burger. Oh. <laughs> oh. So basically, Chris, what you're saying is I should just camp at Kaiser until they show up. <laughs> exactly. It'll be any day now. <laughs> well, and I'm sure that Meghan Markle, having lived in L.A., is familiar yes. with in and out burger. Oh, totally. Well, and also, one should say Canada is not a random place for them to go, not only because it's part of the Commonwealth, but when she filmed Suits, she lived in Toronto for several years. So they like Canada, as do I. Well, I just want to recognize the work NPR's Mary Louise Kelly is doing this week. She's in Iran, and she covered the memorials for um, Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. She's been doing some really strong reporting. And if you follow her on Instagram or on Twitter, you can see some really great photos that she's shared. Just this morning, she posted a picture of the view from her window in Tehran where it snowed this morning, really beautiful. And um, earlier this week, she spoke with Audie Cornish about what it's like to be in Iran covering this historic moment. We, we were being very careful because it was obviously a, an emotionally charged event. And we were Americans in this sea of people who at some moments uh, throughout the proceedings had their fists in the air and were chanting death to America. Um, that said, a lot of people were willing to stop they wanted to tell us what was on their minds. They wanted Americans to know what Iranians think. Yeah, just really want to appreciate the work that Mary Louise Kelly and other NPR reporters are doing this week. It's been a pretty major news week with international news. And of course, the fires in Australia, we've been hearing great reporting from Jason Bobian. So um, just really feel proud of NPR and, and the great reporting that they're doing. I feel like I also would be remiss if I didn't mention our programming changes that we're going to be having on our on our live air, not podcast. Obviously, we're we're not going anywhere. Um, but speaking of great people that NPR have working for them, we're bringing a lot of new programs to KLCC. The one I'm personally the most excited about is uh, the Daily, which is from the New York Times, and um, a bunch of other programs too are coming. And we're going to be moving our schedule around a little bit. So check that all out at klcc.org. Really, really exciting stuff happening. New Year brings new programs. Really cool. Yes. I'm excited too. Okay, well, thanks everyone for joining us for the Northwest Passage. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm the host of Morning Edition, Ani Katz. And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. Bye. 
Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC.